Everything in creation has been designed by the creator with a specific purpose. Everything has a purpose by design. Even the moss that is growing on the rainforest ground, even the microscopic protozoa and the deep sea, to the majestic giraffes that are grazing on the plains of South Africa, every single thing in creation was put there by the Creator for a specific purpose, and it plays its role in God's economy to display His glory. And you and I are no different. We too have a specific purpose, a role to play in God's creation. You see, you and I have been created in the image of God. See, unlike that single cell protozoa in the bottom of the ocean floor, you and I bear God's image. We have been created for a very specific purpose. Think of it this way. As image bearers of God, we are reflectors. That's what we are. We're, We're mirrors. We have been created to reflect God's glorious character. That's what we exist for. But due to our corruption, due to the sin that exists in the world and also in our own hearts, souls, and we're, we are depraved because of our sin, we all fail to reflect the glory of God. Yes, we still have God's image. We still reflect it, but not perfectly. It's corrupted. It is tainted. And so sadly, oftentimes due to our sin, we, we don't reflect God's character. Instead, we reflect things like selfishness, and we reflect rebellion and idolatry. And so we have to be honest with ourselves in that we are broken. And that is why God the Father sent God the Son into this dark world. He came to restore He came to restore his creation, including you and me, to its original purpose and design, which is to be a display of the glory of God. And so we, as sinful humans, the only way that we can even have the desire to, the want to, to live a life that reflects God's character and holiness, the only way that we can even want that is if his spirit changes our hearts. So we need a new heart. And this is only done through the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's victorious over sin and death, and then his spirit doing that regeneration in our hearts and changing us so that we can then be further sanctified in everyday life so that we want to. And slowly but surely, we experience more of God's restorative work in our lives through His Spirit as we focus on His Word and doing it together. And then we do begin to display His character in daily life more and more. Until the day comes when Christ returns and our restoration is complete and we'll be glorified and we will have the complete image and we'll reflect God's glory with no more corruption. And people that have repented and are trusting in Jesus alone. We are the ones that have tasted his goodness and are beginning to experience that reality right now. And we can accomplish 
Our purpose, that we were designed from the beginning. Our purpose is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. So when we are enjoying God, then we will be living lives that glorify Him. So God's restoring work changes so that we want to live in this way. And we've been meditating on these truths about God's restoration in our lives, in our church the last few weeks as we work through our current series in Ezra and Nehemiah, a series called Restoration, the Gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. So today we'll be in chapters 5 and 6. We left off with chapter 4 last week. As you turn there, I want to just give you the brief context for where we've been. In 539 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia allowed the Jewish exiles to return to the promised land so that they could rebuild their lives, rebuild the city, but most importantly, rebuild the temple that was left in ruins by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. when they destroyed Israel. Now, at what we saw so far in chapters 3 and in chapter 4, the last two weeks, is that the altar... The temple had been rebuilt and sacrifices had commenced as acts of worship before God. And the foundation of the temple was laid. And as they were continuing to rebuild the temple, they had opposition. The enemy opposed them as the enemy has been doing from the very beginning. Satan opposing the people of God, the purposes of God, and he continues to do so today. And so, the, so God's people in this context were paralyzed. They were paralyzed by discouragement and fear and frustration. We saw that last week. So the enemy discouraged them and, and made them too afraid to continue. And they were so frustrated that they quit. And for about 15 years or so, they stopped. They stopped rebuilding the temple. The restoration that God had for them ceased. Because they didn't trust their God enough. And the same is true for us today is the enemy attacks us with the same three things. Discouragement, fear, and frustration. And we must keep building. We must continue to see God's restoration in our lives as we continue to trust him. So let me give you the primary truth here up front from Ezra 5 and 6. And then as we look at this narrative, as it unfolds, we're going to see how to understand and how to apply, because that's the point. If we're not applying it, then it's just historical information, and it's not helpful, just academic. So as we see how this applies to us, we'll see how this main idea unfolds. But here it is up front. The truth from this text is that God restores his people so that they can display his glory. So that's what God is doing. God is at work restoring his people to what? Restoring them to himself. Restoring God's people that have broken relationships. He's restoring us to our original purpose to reflect his glory. This holistic restoration. Why? So that we can do our our purpose, which is to reflect his glorious character. So the key is being satisfied in Christ. When we are, then our thoughts, our desires, our words, and our actions will be impacted and changed. So today we're looking at restoration, a display of God's glory. We're going to see four truths from Ezra 5 and 6. These are four specific truths from the text that show us how exactly God's restoration is displaying 
his glory. Let's look at number one. If you're taking notes, number one is God's restoration displays his glory. Number one, by restoring purpose to his people. And so God is restoring purpose to you and me. You see it in Ezra 5, verses 1 and 2. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Okay, so what you see here in these two initial verses is God is restoring purpose to his people. Now, the events of these two chapters, as of 5 and 6, took place between the years 520 B.C. and 516 B.C. Now, this was actually over 20 years. I remember 539 is when they returned from Babylon. And so this is 520 to 516. So this is over 20 years later after they initially came back from Babylon. And it says that Haggai and Zechariah, these are two prophets. You can read their writings in the Old Testament. These two prophets are mentioned right here because they played a role in this restoration era of Israel. And so reading these two Old Testament prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, are actually important to understand Ezra 5 and 6. Now, we don't have time to read Ezra 5 and 6 and Zechariah and Haggai this morning, but on your own time, I encourage you to do that. It'll help you understand this. It's all connected. But I will read just the first five verses in Haggai so that we can get the context. Haggai 1 says, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not come to build the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your own paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And so for about 15 years again, people of God were not rebuilding the temple. So day after day, they would walk past the ruins of what once was this majestic house of God. What happened to them? They lost sight of their purpose. They lost sight of it. They lost their focus. They were so consumed with the affairs of life. Oh, it's not time yet to rebuild the temple. They were probably thinking to themselves, my life is just so busy. I have four kids. Maybe they had more than that, I'm sure. I have a job. I have bills to pay. My wife, you don't have any idea what that's like at home. Or my husband, he doesn't help. Or my boss. Or the economy. Or whatever it is. And so many things just get in our minds and they they consume our thoughts. And we get so embroiled in the things of this 
world that we forget that all of the things of this world are designed to be a display of God's glory. And so how you are a father, how you are a mother, how you are an employee, how you do your finances, how you keep your home, all of that is meant to be worshipped before God. All of it. But you see here, they had lost sight of that. Like, no, it's not time. We'll serve God later. It's not time now. Apathy. As you see here, apathy had set in. So they had lost sight of their purpose. And we can be just as guilty of spiritual apathy. Apathy will rob you. Hear me. Apathy will rob you of the restoration that God desires for you. He'll rob you. You see, God wants you and me to live lives of purity to live lives of generosity, of sacrificial service to the church and to the world. He wants us to have healthy, reconciled relationships, a zeal for the gospel, and passionate, white-hot worship and love for Jesus. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to have joy as you're honestly, intentionally following and enjoying Him. But sometimes apathy can just kind of creep in. So you find yourself this morning a bit apathetic towards the purposes of God. Maybe, maybe you lack concern for your growth and your holiness. Maybe you're just a little bit too comfortable with that sinful pattern. Or are you struggling with maybe a sense of coldness? Towards Jesus. Spiritual mediocrity. Apathy is cancer to your soul. Spiritual apathy is being content with only partial victory and only partial restoration in our lives. And God wants you to have far more than that. So on this morning, are you maybe struggling or or suffering from a loss of focus on Jesus and on his purposes. Much like the Israelites here in Ezra 5, the root of our spiritual apathy is sin. There's always a sinful desire that is underneath, sometimes very deeply hidden or rooted, but in the case of the Israelites, it was a desire for comfort and convenience They didn't want to go through the effort of rebuilding the temple and having opposition. They're like, no, no, it's just too hard. We're just not going to do that. They wanted to be comfortable. And oftentimes we can be just as guilty of desiring comfort more than having God's glory displayed through how we live our lives. But I praise God that he loves you and me too much to leave us in our complacency. Just like with the Israelites, he cared about them too much. So what did he do? He sent them the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to do what? To speak truth, to preach to them, to remind them. Hey, remember, remember, you've lost your focus. There's a temple. It's in ruins. Let's get to work. Let's go serve God together. And so they were reminding them to to consider their ways and and to serve God and not just themselves, to restore their 
purpose. Do you find yourself on this morning being honest that that you're living more for the gods of this world versus the God of heaven? And what are the gods of this world? They're easily identified. The gods of this world are financial security, approval of others, immoral sexual desires or any other addiction. The list goes on. And there's very subtle ways that we can find our joy in the things of this world. And we think, if I avoid the big sins, then I'm okay. But what God wants is you to really enjoy Him. And what is big or small? Jesus died for the sins of the world. He wants you to have a heart that truly is gripped by Him. So what this world has to offer leaves us empty. But I thank God that He meets us in our failures in our brokenness and he restores purpose to our lives and our ultimate purpose is to know and enjoy jesus so if you're here today and if you're honest if you think man i i really feel like i'm really lacking a sense of meaning in life i'm lacking significance or purpose if you're struggling with thinking well what's the point I'm just, I'm just, I'm just this rat race. What's, what's the point of it all? If that's, if you're having those thoughts, then what you need is God's restoration. That's what you need. You need more of God's presence in your life. There's an error in your life possibly where you're not really giving that to him. You're holding back. And so we need to do what? Well, what is the solution to this? We repent. Repent of what? We repent of our autonomy, our our desire to be independent from God and self-sufficient. We repent of our idolatry. Because at the root of, of this meaninglessness is because we're not finding a meaning in who we are in Christ. So it's running back to God. Truly trusting Him. Like the Israelites here had to respond to truth. And what did they do? They did respond to truth. They repented of their apathy and of not wanting to serve God. And they ran back to their God. How is this evidenced? They began the reconstruction of the temple, it says in verse 2. And so by resuming the temple's reconstruction, that was evidence that they were once again trusting their God. They responded to truth. And so today, as, as we're hearing truth from God's word, how are you responding to it? Are you, are you wanting to push it back or are you allowing the spirit of God to take God's truth and to let it sink in deep and, and do the transformation and the healing and the restoring that he wants to do? Because what God wants from you is joy. And we'll see it in a few minutes. We get to chapter 6. There's this theme of joy. They had joy. They were enjoying. And so that's what God wants for his people, to have joy in him. And so, number one, we see here that God restores our purpose. Number two, that God's restoration displays his glory by sustaining his people during adversity. He restores our purpose, and he sustains us when there are difficult times in adversity. We see it in verses 3 through 5. At the same time, 
Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bonzai. You, you can't say better than I can, so that's okay. And their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this. What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eyes of, the, of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius. And then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. Okay, so they're rebuilding the temple. So, so they're trusting God. They're taking these faith steps. They're, they're saying, okay, God, we're going to serve you and be intentional. And so they're rebuilding the temple. And what's the first thing that happens? The opposition shows up. The local officials, the, the governor of that province shows up and says, who gave you permission to rebuild this temple? Now, just think for a second, trapping yourself in their sandals. If you had a renewed zeal and purpose to really serve God faithfully, and you're working hard to rebuild this temple, and then the government officials show up with all the law enforcement and the blue lights show up all of a sudden, and they're confronting you and saying, what are you doing? And what's your name? Let me see your ID. And and they're writing down your name. And they're threatening you. And they're intimidating you. Would you have felt anxious? You know, it's interesting if you stop and think about this. For about 15 years, the temple was ignored. They were apathetic. And guess what? They had no opposition either. No one came asking questions. No one confronted them. No one intimidated them. No one opposed them. But the second that they got serious about serving God, the thing that they got serious about the glory of God is the exact second that Satan showed up all over again to oppose the purposes and the work of God. And so the second that we get serious about really following God, we have to expect opposition. He's going to attack. He doesn't want us to experience more of God's healing and restoration and displaying his glory. He doesn't want that for you. He wants you defeated and apathetic. That's what he wants. And so here they are being attacked. But verse 5, to me, is just really awe-inspiring. I love verse 5. It says, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. Yes, the eye of the local officials was also on them. But that's not that important. What's important is that God had his eye on them. God was watching over them. And God was sustaining them through his grace, through the opposition. And it says, and they did not stop until the report should reach Darius. Darius was the king. And then answer be returned by a letter concerning it. So what, what you see here is the local official sent a letter to King Darius, asking, are they allowed? Is, is this legal that they're rebuilding this temple? Remember, it had been about 15 years. So this governor wasn't there 15 years earlier when they had begun the construction of the temple. So all he knew was the temple is in ruins. That's how it's supposed to be. That's all he knew. And now they're building. He's like, wait, 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 stop. You can't do that. 
And so he sends a letter. So verses 6 through 17 record a letter that, that the governor sends to King Darius, the king of Persia. And he's in, investigating, is, do they have a legal right to be building this temple? So in the meantime, the Israelites are waiting in a response. Do we have permission from the government or not to continue building this temple? This is uncertain. Their names were already recorded. So for all they knew, they were going to get in big trouble. For all they knew, everyone that was there, that had their names recorded, could have been severely persecuted if this was found to be unlawful. And so there was great uncertainty and anxiety. And yet, it says, they did not stop building. They kept on building in the face of uncertainty. They kept on building in the face of opposition, in the face of the unknown. They could have easily said, well, we should probably take a break or stop because we don't know if it's legal or not. And once we get the final answer, then we will go ahead and commence building if it's a yes. No, they didn't do that. They kept building. Trusting in the promises of their God who promised restoration. And so they continued to trust God and show that by taking action for him. So the letter reaches King Darius. This is all in verses 6 through 17. And so he checks the royal archives to see if indeed this was a decree. Remember, now Darius is ruling 20-some years later. And so in the middle of that, as he's looking through the archives, there's uncertainty. What about you? Are you facing a sense of uncertainty today? Are you facing something that's just really unknown or up in the air so to speak. How are you responding to life in the middle of the unknown? Remember, our enemy wants to discourage you, make you fearful, and he wants to frustrate you. We have a God who sustains us in the middle of the adversity and of the unknown. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, describe how King Darius did find in the royal archives that record of King Cyrus who issued the decree. Because he did. It says it in verse 1, chapter 1. And so we know what happened. And so he, he locates it. And then there's a letter that is sent in response. And so verses 6 through 12 in chapter 6 describe the letter that King Darius sent back to the governor there in Judah. Let's read that together. Chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. This is King Darius writing to the governor. Now, therefore, Tetanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bonzanai, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Hear that? Keep away. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding that what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that 
be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out of hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Man, that rocks, doesn't it? That's just an awesome letter. So here's a pagan. The king of Persia writes a letter back to his, one of his governors in that region. And he tells them, leave the Israelites alone. He says, keep away. Don't stop the construction. And he says, oh, and by the way, um, governor, you pay for it. And make sure they have rams, and bulls, and oil, whatever they need. You, governor, pay for it. I'm so glad you asked. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. Because we weren't following Cyrus's orders from 20 years earlier. And so we need to get on the ball with this. Don't delay. Don't waste time. You, governor, don't stop them. You enable them to complete the restoration that God has promised. This is so like God. This is what God does. What the enemy means for evil, our God uses, and he works it for our good. You see, the governor sent this letter to try to stop the purposes of God. And God uses the letter to enable it. He turns what the enemy means to curse us and stop us and uses the very same thing to bless us, to sanctify us, to display his glory. So Satan's efforts are thwarted at every turn. The best example of this is on the cross. Satan succeeded in having Jesus, the Messiah, killed, crucified. Satan succeeded in killing him. And in the process, he fulfilled God's plan to save all of those who repent and trust and that risen Messiah. So that's, that's what God does. He has victory over the enemy. So in the face of frustration today, we can look to Jesus. We can look to him. Because he's won the victory over our enemy. So we just honestly trust him. Let's read the next few verses as we continue in the story before our time runs out. Same chapter 6, verses 13. Through 15. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tetsanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bonzanai, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And all the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day, the month of Adar, and the sixth year of the reign of Darius, the king. Praise be to God. They completed 
the temple. And this is four years later in 516 BC when it was finally completed. But we see here that God is actively sustaining and restoring his people in the face of adversity for his own glory. Verses 16 through 18 describe how the temple was then dedicated. And it says, with joy. Now, that seems kind of backwards, how serving God brought them joy, when oftentimes we would think to ourselves, no, if we serve ourselves, then I'm going to be happy. If I serve me, I'm going to be happy. That doesn't work. It goes against our purpose. When we serve ourselves, it leads to misery. It leads to darkness and emptiness. When we serve God, it results in joy. Serving So what are you facing today? What adversity are you facing? What temptation are you facing? What uncertainty is before you? Our God promises to sustain and to restore in the middle of that. If we will turn to him, honestly trust him. Not just say it, but actually do it. Maybe today your life needs rebuilding. Maybe you think, man, my my life is just a wreck. It's ruins and My life needs to be rebuilt. That's okay. That's what God does. He rebuilds. You turn to him. You repent and you honestly trust him with God's people. And his spirit will work and he will rebuild you. So we see here that God sustains us in that verse. Number three, as we come to a screeching halt, time is expiring. Number three, God's restoration displays his glory by restoring worship to his people. God is restoring worship. You see it in verses 19 through 22 at the end of chapter 6. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for the fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel, who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is awesome. So they're celebrating. They're celebrating Passover as expressions of worship. So what you see here, here's the key, is that experiencing restoration leads to passionate worship of God. And so if we're finding ourselves not really wanting to worship God, find ourselves wanting to worship idols instead, then we have to go back and say, well, what area of my life is needing more of God's work? What area in my life needs more of God's restoration? What do I need to give to God, like, where am I holding back? Because I, I don't, I don't, I'm not wanting to pray. I'm not wanting to read. I'm not wanting to serve. Well, what's wrong with me? Why? And we need to take inventory and ask, well, what's going on? And ask God to reveal to us. Unless maybe you already know clearly. Repent of that. And it leads, it says here, great joy. And it's significant here that it mentions temple and Passover. Both of these, temple and Passover, are mentioned because that points to Jesus. 
the, the Passover commemorates how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the world and liberates us from our slavery to sin. And so everything in the Exodus and the Passover is pointing to what Jesus did on the cross to liberate us. And the temple, mentioned here, it's been now dedicated and now it's fully functioning. Well, the temple represented God dwelling with his people, living right there with them. But God is holy. So how can God, who is holy, live with the people that are not holy? There were sacrifices. At the temple, they would sacrifice animals that took the place of the humans to atone for the sins of the people, pointing to Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice, who takes away our sin. And so where is the temple today? Look around. Where is the temple? God's Spirit dwells in His people. If you're a believer in Jesus, he dwells in you. And so the temple of God is him residing with his people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God is still building. But the difference is what you're seeing in Ezra is pointing to something much bigger. This is a shadow pointing to the ultimate reality. What is God building? He is building a new spiritual house for himself. He is building the temple of the Holy Spirit. He is building his church. Jesus promised, I will build my church. What are you talking about? A building campaign? I'll build my people where my spirit's going to indwell. He's building a spiritual house and that's The absolute privilege that we have to have God living among us, in us, with us, for us, so that we can display His glory. And worship is a response of a heart that has been just overwhelmed and gripped by these truths. So God is actively restoring true worship. As Jesus says, the day will come, worship me in spirit and in truth. And we are now those that have inherited that blessing that can worship God in spirit and truth. How do we do that? We treasure Jesus. We treasure and we trust him. When we are honestly treasuring Jesus more than anything else and we're honestly trusting him, you know what that leads to? Obedience. No treasuring Jesus, no trusting him, no obedience. When we're doing those two, That is the result. And so transformed and restored lives of worship before God bring God's glory to be displayed to a watching world, which brings us to our last point here. That God's restoration displays his glory by restoring the lost to himself, by reconciling those that are far from him back to himself. We just read it in verse 21. It says there were many people that joined Israel that had separated themselves from the other nations. And so you had people that were not ethnic Jews. They were pagans from other nations. What did they do? They were here worshiping the one true God, celebrating Passover, pointing to Jesus. We're going to see these people in heaven one day. And so think about it. 
these people from different nationalities, and they gave up that identity. They gave up their religion. They gave up their idol worship. They gave up their old ways of life, and they're identifying with the people of God. Why? Because they saw more. More what? They saw more beauty in God. They saw more truth in God. More joy. More fulfillment. More purpose. More meaning. More of everything that God offers. More restoration. And so they saw more value in the God of heaven than in their idols. And so they repented. They gave up their idols and they embraced the one true God and were worshiping him. And so that is what happens with us today. We see more beauty, more glory in Jesus in their idols. And we turn away from them. We trust in God. And then he begins to restore, to transform. And so we are the ones that are a light to the nations. We display his glory and our transformed, truly restored lives is what other people see and are drawn. And then they will want to join us to worship our God who truly is greater. He really is stronger. And Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us as we storm The the, the gates aren't charging us. We're charging the gates. Understand this image. The gates of hell? Well, that means we are attacking. We are on the offensive. We are not sitting passive. We are defeating our enemy because Christ has already given us a victory on the cross. And so we trust him with every day. Think about it. If we're trusting him for eternity... Why not trust him with today? Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you from whom all blessings flow. We are truly desperate for your presence and your redeeming and restoring work in our lives. We thank you for your son's work on the cross and the forgiveness that you offer us and how we can help others to also Come and join us as we worship you. Help us to be a church that is truly on mission and intentional and is here to display your glory to a watching world. And we pray it for your sake, in the name of our King and our love, Jesus. Amen.